the guest speaker this year at the Christmas gathering at St. Andrew's Chapel in Sanford, Florida, was Vodi Bauckham. Dr. Bauckham is the Dean of Theology at the African Christian University in Zambia, and he began with an interesting observation. He said, the most expensive Christmas tree ever, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, was a 42-foot tree decorated with diamonds, pearls, and gold, valued at $11 million. It stood in the lobby of the Palace Hotel in Abu Dhabi, the capital of the United Arab Emirates. And Bauckham said, marinate on that idea in your mind for a moment. In the country where you would be jailed at best for talking about Jesus. In a country where you could lose your life if you were a Muslim and converted to Christianity. They had a 42-foot, $11 million Christmas tree prominently displayed in the finest hotel lobby in town. Why? Well, the answer, Bauckham says, is because we become very comfortable with the story of Christmas but not at all with the theology of Christmas. The story of Christmas is fine anywhere. Let me tell you a story about a young family expecting their first child. Let me tell you a story about a difficult journey that a couple must make in the winter. Let me tell you a story about a baby born in a stable and laying in a manger. That story is fine anywhere, and that's what makes the symbols of Christmas associated with Christmas perfectly fine to people who will literally kill for the theology of Christmas. Dr. Bauckham went on to use Galatians 4 to explain the theology of Christmas. In Galatians 4, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes this. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God had sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of all things through God. It's the theology behind the Christmas story that makes the birth of Jesus the most significant event in history. And it happened in the fullness of time. The theology behind Christmas is why we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And when we separate the story from the theology, the symbols lose the love that we have for them, and Christmas is reduced to an unfulfilled search for joy through crass commercialism. So to encourage our joy at Christmas, I invite you to open your Bible to Genesis 49. Genesis chapter 49. 
My title for this message is Christmas in Genesis. And in this chapter, where Jacob gives his prophetic blessings to his 12 sons on the day of his death, he will, he will, what he tells them reveals to us the hope that we have in Christmas. And the one big idea that I want to draw out from this text, and it's again on the top of your handout, is this. The foundation of our Christian Christmas hope is in the theology of covenant history. Foundation means stable and secure. Hope, in the biblical aspect of hope, is the conviction of things not seen. Covenant is how God deals with his creation. And covenant history is what we have in our Bible. Our belief that Jesus is the promised Savior rests on the secure foundation of how God has dealt with his creation in a covenant legal fashion and how he has revealed to us in our Bible the history of how he has worked to bring about his promise of a Savior in the fullness of time. Now, on the first Sunday of Advent, we lit the prophecy candle. It was called the candle of hope. And our text today is the clearest prophecy in Genesis of how God plans to grow Israel into the great nation that will bring forth in the fullness of time God the Son in human form as the baby born to a virgin in Bethlehem on that first Christmas. This baby was born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who had broken the law so that they might become sons and daughters of the Most High God and inherit the riches of his kingdom forever. So if you're able, please stand as I read part of our text. I'm going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 49. Then God called his sons, or then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Then in verses 3, all the way through verses 27 we have the prophetic words of Joseph, of Jacob, to his sons. And then following down um, in verses, chapter, Jacob gives some instructions to his sons as to what they will do when he, uh, for his burial. And then chapter 33, our text ends with these words. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. May God bless the reading of his word to his people. Please be seated. So it is, on the day of his death, Jacob gathers his sons in the traditional act of blessing them. And verses 3 through 27 are called a prophetic oracle in Bible terms. 
it's it's how it's it tells us how God will use Israel in his redemptive work. Now Jacob speaks to each one, beginning with Reuben, the oldest, and then more or less in birth order. And I've divided his oracle into four parts to show us how God works through history to bring about the fullness of time and his promised Savior. We'll look at, in in four different ways, we'll look at Jacob's words first to Reuben and Simeon, and they show us God's punishment and provision. Second, his blessings to the seven sons who uh, play more of a supporting role in Israel show us God's patience and his purpose. Third, in the blessing to Joseph, Joseph's blessing highlights God's royal rescue. And finally, in the blessing to Judah, what we will see is the Redeemer's reward. So punishment, provision, patience and purpose, royal rescue, and Redeemer's reward. Let's begin with punishment and provision in the first two blessings, beginning in verse 3. Here's what we read. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminence in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. You recall Reuben's sin? It's recorded in Genesis 35, and his punishment is the loss of his double portion of the family inheritance and the loss of his position as family leader into the next generation. Next, Jacob turns to Simeon and Levi in verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers, Jacob says. Weapons of violence are their swords. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So scattering and division are the punishment for Simeon and Levi. Punishment for their revenge on the men of the city of Shechem over the rape of their sister Dinah. That story was in Genesis 34, you recall. And Simeon and Levi, incensed over the rape of their sister, fooled the men of the city of Shechem, and when they were at their most vulnerable, they attacked the city, they killed the people, they killed the animals, they burned the city to the ground. For their punishment, God says, I will divide them and scatter them in Israel. But in these punishments, we see God's provision. We see it in Reuben's offspring. They will inherit land in the promised land that is to the east of the main body of Israel. And positioned to the east, they will be an effective shield for Israel against their enemies who try to attack them from the east in the generations to come. Simeon's offspring will settle in, inside the tribe of Judah, and they will be instrumental in helping Judah 
to win that territory because it was a very large territory centered on Jerusalem. But the real provision is in Levi's blessing. In Levi's blessing. In Levi, God will bring about two essential people ten generations later. Moses and his brother Aaron. Moses will lead the people out of Egypt and out of slavery. Moses will receive God's law. Aaron will establish the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. And through that priesthood, God will provide the protection that covers his people for their sins so that God can effectively dwell in their midst and build them into the people that God has planning for them to become. So God's provision in these punishments is a great leader to bring about the law and a great, another great leader to bring about the sacrificial priesthood system so that the law can be a demonstration of the necessity of a covering for human sin so that God can be reconciled to his people. Punishment and provision. Without Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, there would have been, would have been no way for God to prepare the nation for the first advent. Next, in verses 13 for 20 through 21, we find the blessings on seven of Jacob's sons. And these blessings show God's patience and his purpose. His patience and his purpose. His patience is to long-sufferingly deal with these people in the events ahead. And we know what those events are all throughout the Exodus, all throughout the book of, of Joshua, all throughout the book of Judges. God is patient because his purpose is to use Israel to fulfill his promise of a savior. In verse 13, we read that Zebulun will live near the sea. And then in down verse 20, Asher, his food will be rich. Both of these prophecies point to the fact that these two people groups will establish harbors that are necessary for the growing nation of Israel, not only for their trade, but also for food beyond which they're able to raise in the country themselves. The people of Issachar, verse 14, it says they will provide uh, they they will provide reliable workers for the national projects that are are going to come about. Issachar's a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw a resting place that was good; the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulders to bear, became a servant at forced labor. His people will be necessary to build the nation. Dan is called a serpent and a viper in verse 17. And true to form, the tribe of Dan will, in their cunning way, they, they will manage to conquer the northern city of Laish, and that will extend the northern border of Israel, providing further protection for the land as it grows. So verses 19 through 21, they then mirror the verses 13 through 17 because both of these describe the blessings of these less prominent offspring uh, of, of these sons uh, and, but who still play an important role in conquering and settling the promised land. 
but between these two bookends of blessing. Look at verse 8, or verse 18. Jacob stops to speak directly to God. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. That's an odd thing to do. He just breaks into doxology. Jacob suddenly breaks into praises, and he does so because he sees the fulfillment of his cherished Abrahamic blessing, the blessing everyone has been arguing about for generations through this family. Jacob sees, he really sees the fulfillment of countless offspring, the promised homeland, and the blessings to all the peoples of the earth, the promise that was given to Abraham. In a sense, Jacob can see the fullness of time and the coming of the promised Savior that we're privileged to know on this side of the cross would be Jesus. So that brings us to our first fill-in. Jacob's prophetic blessings to his sons reveal the theology of Christmas, God's provision. God's provision. All the data show that humanity is lost, that our world is broken, and that we are unable to do anything about it. But God, being rich in mercy, has revealed how he will work in this fallen world through fallen people to build the people from whom he will bring his son so that the world might be saved through him, as John says in John 3.17. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 147, verse 19. God declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his rules to Israel. That's the importance of the law. Jesus would later say to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews, and I who speak to you am he. Jacob saw, and the words that God gave him show us that God will provide everything that's needed to bring about the first Christmas. And as he did so, we gain confidence, the hope, which is the assurance of things not seen. We gain confidence and hope, the foundation that he will bring about the second advent as well. Well, let's move next then to the royal rescue, the royal rescue in Jacob's blessing to Joseph. There would have been no Jacob and no 12 sons to bless without Joseph, our man for all seasons. Israel was only 70 people living in Canaan when the great famine that came threatened their lives. And God used Joseph in a royal rescue by a series of events that led to his being promoted to the royal position of prime minister of Egypt. And as prime minister of Egypt, 
Joseph was in control of the food supply. And through his management, saved the people of the ancient Near East through seven years of great famine that came. As Pharaoh's right-hand man, and under God's providence, Jacob moved his family to an area of Egypt called Goshen, where as shepherds they could be separated from the Egyptians and ply their trade of being agronomists and shepherds. And there they would be grown by God into a great nation. And as Pharaoh's right-hand man, Joseph was able to secure that place for them in the land of Egypt. And there they would live for 10 generations. For this royal rescue, Jacob's longest blessing is reserved for Joseph, his favorite son. Begins in verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, who is also called, or from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Jacob's blessing to Joseph begins with a wordplay on Ephraim's name. Ephraim's name means fruitful. And he says a fruitful bough and branches. Here Jacob is confirming Joseph's double inheritance that will go to Ephraim and Manasseh as Joseph replaces Reuben as the firstborn and gets his inheritance. And in verses 23 and 24, they recall Joseph's unfailing trust in God through one impossible situation after another. He was nearly murdered by his brothers. And only by God's providence and Judah's intervention, and oh, by the chance coming of a Midianite caravan, was Joseph not murdered but sold into slavery. Joseph was sold into slavery twice. In Egypt, he's falsely accused of rape. He's thrown into prison where he's forgotten, but not by God. Not by God. Through these trials, Joseph's faith remains strong as he was led by the shepherd, the stone of Israel. That's a name that Jacob had used previously in chapter uh, 48 for, for God. But the royal rescue becomes clearer or clearest in verse 26. Verse 26. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Jacob uses a Hebrew word for father here that points us back to Abraham. And these words, everlasting hills, that's an indication of something future, something greater. So on his deathbed, Jacob passes the Abrahamic blessing to Joseph. It points to the future 
when Jesus, the one Joseph foreshadows, will, will conduct his royal rescue. The everlasting hills are sort of code for eternal kingdom and the greatest royal rescue of all when Jesus came to rescue his people. So here's our second fill-in then. Jacob's prophetic blessings to Joseph reveal the theology of Christmas, God's rescue, God's rescue. It's interesting, archaeology has uncovered ample evidence of Joseph's royal palace along the uh, northern part of the Nile Delta. We've also uncovered evidence, abundant evidence of Israel's time in the area of Goshen. That's why it's often said that every time the archaeologist's shovel goes into the ground, another Bible critic bites the dust. But more to the point, Reuben's loss and Joseph's gain show that faithfulness is better than presumption. That obedience is better than pride. And this will be an important lesson for Israel to remain faithful to their shepherd, the stone of Israel, and not get above their raisin, as the old country saying goes. Now, Israel will sometimes forget this lesson, but as we've already discovered, God is patient because he's accomplishing his purpose through them. He's patient, and history will reveal that God's rescue of ancient Israel through Joseph is truly the shadow of that greater royal rescue that began with the first advent, when Jesus was born. So Christmas takes on true joy when we recognize the historical significance of Joseph and how he his rescue foreshadows the great rescue that began when Jesus came on that first Christmas. It allows us to find the, few, the, the, the true joy that comes when we understand the theology, big word, the theology of Christmas. So finally, let's, let's turn now to the Redeemer's reward and how redemptive history has revealed that in Jacob's blessing on Judah. Now, most of Jacob's blessings will find fulfillment during the time of Israel in the, in the promised lands, as I said, 10 generations out. Most of Jacob's blessings will find fulfillment there in that settlement and conquest pro uh, process, with one important exception, Judah. In verse 10, beginning in verse 8, we read this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. 
He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Joseph, or Jacob's pro, uh, prophecies on Joseph is the longest list of, of, of prophetic blessings. But his prophecy on Judah has the longest range impact in history. Judah's blessing hinges on the word until in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until. Now, overall, verses 8 through 10 speak of Judah's leadership throughout the history of Israel. It was from Judah that will come Israel's greatest kings, most notably King David and King Solomon. In Judah, we'll see the pinnacles of victory. In Judah, we'll see the depths of apostasy the rebuilding of the nation after the exile. All of these events are tied to Judah and his descendants in the promised land until we get to this little word, until. Until tribute comes to him. Tribute is the Hebrew word Shiloh. It's a name of a town in the area of Ephraim, but in general, the meaning of Shiloh, Shiloh is unclear. It's not used anywhere in the Bible as a title for the Messiah. It's not used to describe any messianic event. And there have been a range of opinions on the interpretation of this word Shiloh. The ESV and the Revised Standard Version say, until tribute comes to him. And then, if you have an ESV, it offers a footnote on alternate translations. The King James Version and the American Standard Version read, until Shiloh comes. No footnote. The NIV reads this, until he comes to whom it belongs. Now, if we follow a basic rule of Bible interpretation, it's that we use clearer verses to understand verses that are less clear. And there's a clearer verse in Ezekiel 21, verses 26 and 27. Here's what we read. Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. What's he talking about? In Ezekiel's time, Israel, the northern kingdom, had fallen to the Assyrians. It was gone. The southern kingdom, Judah, and Jerusalem would soon also fall. Now, the last king of Judah was Zedekiah. He would be blinded and led away to Babylon in chains. And the people would be exiled to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. 
Now, you can read about this in 2 Kings 25. But in summary, what God is saying through Ezekiel is that no more kings. We've had enough of these trappings until he comes to whom it belongs. And I will give it to him. Well, who is the he in this statement? Who is it that owns judgment? Well, Jewish and Christian scholars from the earliest times have understood Genesis 49.10, our verse here, as a messianic prophecy. Because verses 11 and 12 that follow talk of an abundance in creation like nowhere else. Binding a coat to a choice vine would only be done if there were many choice vines because donkeys eat grapevines. It speaks of wine so abundant, people use it for wash water. It speaks of eyes dark as wine in contrast to Proverbs 25 where it talks of eyes of grief swollen red. So gone are the thorns of the curse and the sweat of your brow. They seem to be replaced by the triumph of abundance, an abundance foreshadowed by Jesus when at a wedding in Cana, he performed his first miracle of turning water into wine. So Judah's blessing gives us our last fill-in. Judah's blessing reveals the theology of Christmas, the Redeemer's reward. The Redeemer's reward. We can stand at our house and we can see the hills east of Santa Rosa, but we can't see Guerneville or the town of Forestville that lies in between. And prophecies are like that. They, they, they often see distant peaks of history while the events in the foreground are hidden. And that's the way it is here in Judah's blessing. Because Judah's blessing sees the distant future, the second advent and the new creation. It sees the Redeemer's reward of a bride made spotless. This bride is the countless number of people given to the Son by the Father. The Father's words to Jesus in Psalm 2.8 explain this further. The Father says, ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Daniel saw it a little clearer. In Daniel 7, he writes, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel could see one like the Son of Man only if there had been 
a first advent, when the baby born in Jerusalem was God taking on flesh to become a man. So in summary, Genesis 49, we find God's provision for his purpose of his rescue. His rescue to present the gift of God's reward to the Savior who came in humility and will return in glory. His reward is fitting for a God of infinite love and mercy and justice. Because in Revelation 5, we find the redeemed and all of the hosts of heaven saying what the reward is. By your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth forever. The first advent came in the fullness of time when Jesus was born of woman, born under the law, and perfectly kept the law to redeem those condemned for their breaking of the law. And for those who believe this, this is the good news that brings us the joy of Christmas. And the confidence to know that at the fullness of the present age, the second and final advent will occur when our Savior returns in refulgent glory to bring about his eternal kingdom of peace and joy and righteousness forever. And we have confidence to know that because of what we see here as God has prepared the way for the first fullness of time. And as he has done that, he will continue to prepare the way through the present people of God until the final fullness of time. So the foundation, the foundation then of Christmas hope is the theology revealed in covenant history. Without this, an $11 million Christmas tree in the hotel lobby in Abu Dhabi or any Christmas tree in any lobby in any city is simply a caricature of the most important event in history, the birth of Christ. And when we divorce the symbols of Christmas from the true meaning of Christmas, from the theology of Christmas, the result is an empty shell and a parody of all of these events. But David Garner, professor at Westminster Seminary, reminds us, Christmas isn't a time to be merry and bright just because. For us, it's a time to remember with joyful awe that God loves his people so much that he doesn't just come down to them as a light of light. He comes down as one of them in the fullness of time to give them life abundant eternally. That is the good news in the theology behind the story of Christmas. Let's pray.